Our guest this week is an extraordinary woman. She's a gigantic success in business and real estate and even has a long-running weekend radio talk show in New York City that showcases her knowledge in these areas in addition to tapping into her engaging personality and ample amount of emotional intelligence. Our guest is the chief executive officer of Douglas Elliman, one of the nation's oldest and largest real estate brokerage firms with approximately 27.4 billion dollars in annual sales volume and 7,000 real estate agents. She's been consistently ranked in Crane's New York business, 50 most powerful women in New York, Inman News top 100 most influential real estate leaders, and the New York Observer's The Power 100. In 2015, she was inducted into the Long Island Business News Hall of Fame and listed in the top 50 women entrepreneurs in America by Inc. Magazine among the Inc. 5000 list, where Douglas Elliman was named as one of the fastest growing private companies in America. In 2016, she was named on Forbes 2016 and 2017 list of America's self-made women. In addition, our guest received the Kenneth R. Garrity Humanitarian Award from the Annual Real Estate Board of New York and the Brava Smart CEO Award, recognizing exceptional female leaders for their contributions to business and philanthropy. She's involved with the New York Restoration Project and is on the board of Gold Coast Bank, the Cats Women's Hospital of the North Shore LIJ Health System, Southampton Hospital, the American Heart Association, and Every Woman Matters Walk, a walk for women and their families. As mentioned, she's also host of AM 970 The Answer, WNYM New York's popular Saturday morning radio show, Eye on Real Estate, where she shares expertise on the latest real estate market trends and mortgage news, as well as insights to audience-sourced real estate questions, and she keeps listeners engaged by the scope of her knowledge and personality. She's a force of nature. Our guest this week is Dottie Herman. Welcome to the Michael Harrison Interview, the weekly podcast from Podcast One for media freaks, pop culture aficionados, political junkies, and the philosophically curious. Thank you for downloading this program from Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, the Podcast One app, and Spotify, and for following our Tuesday tweets, announcing the names of our weekly guests. To sign up, it's at MH Interview. I can be reached directly via email at michaelatalkers.com. If you find this show to be of interest and value, please subscribe to it as well as giving it a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Okay, here we go. An uninterrupted conversation with Dottie Herman. Well, at the beginning of this program, Dottie, I went through just a a partial list of all of your credentials and accomplishments uh, in business and in life. It's quite uh, very, very impressive. I I want to congratulate you on... um, so many accomplishments. Uh, you must feel you must feel at this point gratified, or is every day a new adventure for you? I had a path. I followed my passion, and so um, throughout my life, I did what I was passionate about. And I learned from being uh, young when I from when I was young that when there's, of course, life throws you a curveball, there's obstacles. Don't give up. Just figure a way around it. And that's how I live my life, and and I really am very fortunate to have met some great people along the way, some great mentors, some great people, and to find something that I was passionate about. 
That's great. You know, you and I have a similar past in terms of we both were born in Brooklyn and we both uh, grew up uh, on Long Island and we both attended um, uh, two of uh, the island's fine uh, higher institutions of or institutions of higher learning, as they say. Uh, you went to Adelphi and I went to Hofstra. So uh, it's kind of a, an interesting past. I know. That's kind of really kind of funny that, that, would be, that the odds on that are just probably high. But, you know, it's interesting when I first um, bought Douglas Elliman, and I, I'll never forget it, we had just broke out more, and I think it was St. Paddy's Day, so we broke out more Sunday, and then St. Monday was St. Paddy's Day. So I waited till Tuesday, because you can't get around the city, to make the announcement. And, you know, in a way, it was good that no one really knew who I was, because I really had about that time, maybe 38, 40 offices, but they were all on Long Island and Queens, and so... Um, they said, you're from Long Island, like, how come you dress nice? <laughs> and I said, well, amongst the few trailer parks you could have, uh, I said, there are a few good stores around. And little did they know, and as I got to know them, I would take them to different places in, in, in Long Island. And I had a wonderful childhood there. I loved the beach. I mean, we I guess if you grew up in Long Island, you were at the beach all the time. Oh, sure. So, <laughs> um, I had great memories, and it was a great place to grow up. Definitely. Over the years, uh, and, and uh, I go back even further than you do, um, I've seen such changes in Long Island. And, and when I was a young uh, kid... Growing up on Long Island with ties to New York, we used to, I used to stay with my grandparents in Brooklyn for summers, even after we left Brooklyn and I lived on the island. Um, people in New York looked at Long Island as out on the island, far out on the island. We originally, we bought a house in Farmingdale. Actually, we bought a house in Bethpage, but then we found out we really were living in Farmingdale, that the post office had changed. Well, us. yeah, it's funny you should say that my first office, when I worked for Merrill Lynch, the first office that I was managing, was in Plainview. Uh-huh, that area. Yeah, same, same yeah, basement. Yeah, Plainview, called, Bethpage, around, you yeah, know, all of that. Yeah, called Mid-Island. Uh, Mid and the people in New York would say, oh, all the way out there, there are potato farms and ducks, and, <laughs> and, and it's it's not civilization. And for those of us that lived in what was called Mid-Island back in those years, the, the Plainview and, and Bethpage and Farmingdale area, the Hamptons and Montauk may as well have been on Mars. I mean, they, it, it, if you went for a trip out to Montauk Point, that was that was like going to Buffalo. I mean, it was considered far well, away, and there were great real estate bargains there, but who would want them? You basically had a vision, didn't you, that there could be a connection between Manhattan and New York, Nassau County, and this could be far-flung all the way out you know, 100 miles or whatever, 80 miles to, to the tip of Long Island, and that it could actually become a valuable, cosmopolitan, sophisticated area. T tell me about that. Well, I <clears throat> I opened up in the Hamptons from scratch um, prior to uh, being with Douglas Elliman or buying that. And I think I probably opened up in the Hamptons 20 years ago about I bought a house here, which was a dream that I always had. And I said, well, I might as well have real estate offices. And somebody called me up, this lady called me up, and she said, you know, I looked you up, and, you know, um, I think she worked for one of the big brokerage houses. And uh, she, um, when they did well, they gave top producers offices. So she said, you should be in the Hamptons. You should have real estate offices here. And I said, well, you know, 
I don't really know anyone there other than when I go there and I don't, and it's a very, it's not, there's no MLS. At the time, there was no MLS. So you really were at liberty of brokers sharing their listings with you and they, if they felt like they did and if they didn't, they didn't. And um, I just opened up. I opened up my first office in East Hampton and um, I was with Prudential uh, as a franchise. And so, uh, because Maryland sold their company, which was company-owned to Prudential. And Prudential said, we don't want to own any real estate companies. We we feel real estate is very local. So, therefore, we're just going to franchise regions. And so I went out to the Hamptons, and I have a big article in New York Magazine about it because the brokers um, at that time, there was only a, a handful of brokers, and they were all local good old boys, if I might say. And they said to me, you know, no offense, don't take this personally, but you won't make it here. Huh. You didn't grow, you didn't come in on the Mayflower. And those are their exact words. And oh, I boy. said, well, I'll be a lady, but I will make it here. And um, they boycotted me. So they wouldn't co-broke any listings. So it's really hard to open offices when you have no listings, so you can't recruit anybody because you can't say, come to my company, and we have no listings, and we can't even share them. None of the other brokers will share them with us. So I um, <clears throat> hired all brand-new people, and I was still running, like, about 30 offices on Long Island, but now the Hamptons, they call, actually, the Hamptons calls Long Island Up Island. Like, it's kind of a different market completely. And I just hired brand-new people. I trained them. I said, put signs anywhere you can put them. And the police would take my signs down every week, and I'd have to have them picked up at the police station. And then um, some of the brokers that were existing felt bad for me, so they gave me like a million listings that were typed into the computer for years, and I didn't know what sold and what didn't sell. And I just put them all up on the Internet, and I wrote, you know, um, you know, now open for business and accepting listings, no signatures and required and, and and of course I normally would not do that but I had to get started and that's what I did and then I was you know I had to go out on all the listings with people while I was still running my company because I couldn't get anyone experience with no listings um, so I went out on them and I met a man who um, I didn't know who he was but he said you know you've got I won't say what he said but because <laughs> I admire you he said you can you know you you can go tell them to, I won't say what he said. Mm -hmm. He said, so here, I'm giving you 45 listings. And little did I know, he was one of the largest landowners um, in, in, in the Hamptons and in Brooklyn. And um, he gave me 40 listings, you know, on land, just like that. Wow, and that got and, you rolling, uh, huh? Yeah, and yeah. he um, never met him. I wouldn't, uh, you know, I wouldn't really know him, but, but he kept track of me. What and, do you uh, know? Huh. Amazing. So it was, you know, that's how I broke in. Well, certainly. The and then I opened up five, like, I think I opened up about nine offices in the Hamptons. Yeah. Then, um, you know, now, you know, I always tell people, you can't buy respect, you earn respect. And so I, um, uh, I think that I earned the respect, you know, in the Hamptons and, um, now it's, I've been here forever. So when people were out in the Hamptons, they were on a different mode. A lot of the city buys in the Hamptons as a second home. And in the city, no one's really, everyone's running, 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 and they're not really approachable. But in the Hamptons, they have a spare time. 
So opening up in the Hamptons, I really got to know a lot of people in the city, and I did a lot of uh, things, art shows and things that we did to get people into the offices. And I thought, you know what? The customer in the Hamptons is in Manhattan. That's the per- that's the primary person who buys the homes in the Hamptons. And I said, and there is no company that goes from Manhattan to Montauk. And of course, being from Long Island, I know all about Robert Moses and how he built bridges to connect Manhattan to Long Island. And I said, well, I'm going to build be the first one to build a bridge in real estate. And that's really what I did. And that really is true. I mean, when you think about it, there are connections between um, places that are separated by large tracts of geography, uh, New York and South Florida, for example. Um, uh, uh, Los Angeles has its places around the country where you find a lot of residents have second homes uh, on the West Coast. Palm Springs, for example, uh, comes to mind. Uh, this, this is an interesting uh, phenomenon of, uh, I guess, the, the shrinking world, you know, and the expansion of communications and the expansion yes. of, of uh, transportation. You said something interesting before. You said that uh, you um, you respond when it gets difficult. In your biographies, uh, there's talk about you losing your mother at the age of 10 and that inspiring you to make something of yourself. That, that, that had a, a, a big impact on uh, 10-year-old uh, Dottie, didn't it? Of course it did. I... I- you know, I'm often asked, like, what do you, what did it feel like? And again, at 10 years old, I don't know how I internalized it, but I, I, you know, we were in a car accident in which my mom died in that car accident. And so I was knocked out. And so I didn't know my mother was dead until I woke up in the hospital. And there was a priest standing over me, and I will never forget his face and what he said to me. And he looked at me and he said, I, I really don't want to tell you this, and I don't know how to tell you this. And I was alone because my dad was in intensive care, and my brother was in the, where the boys' part of the hospital is, and my sister was probably only three or four. So um, he said, but your mom's dead. Oh. But with that, he gave me a wooden angel. It was from Germany, and it was a carved wooden angel that was a music box, and it sang Ave Maria. And he said to me, but your mom's an angel now, and she's always going to be watching out for you, and she's always going to be with you. And I still have that angel, and um, I would kind of always, and I'm not religious, I'm, I'm a spiritual, but I'm not religious, but I always felt that I had an angel, and I that she was sure. always there. And when I first started becoming successful, I, one of the speeches I did, or uh, I, an award I won, I... I said, and I want to thank, you know, whoever. And then I went, and I want to thank my mom, who's been my angel. And I believe that. I think that she's been there in some sense. And I never, you know, I I certainly wasn't the best kid in the world. I mean, I did my share of stuff. But then I always said, oh, she's probably watching me. I better turn it around and behave. Interesting. Yeah. Well, the priest obviously was very comforting as well. I mean, aside from the religious aspect of it, just having somebody kindly like that and telling you a story like that um, for a 10 year old. I mean, it's incomprehensible how what that experience must have been like. And um, obviously um, it uh, it gave you some type of strength. Well, it gave me strength. Well, actually, what it did is and again, it's all in retrospect. As I look back, you know, my dad who was driving the car, so he, um, 
you know, there was no other cars involved. We skidded on ice. Oh, gosh. Uh, my mom suffered from migraines, and she happened to have a migraine coming back from her friends. We were skiing, and she he skidded on the ice. So, you know, there was, so he was filled with guilt, and just he was in the hospital for three months. It was never really the same after that. Oh and so, um, but I do... You know, I do remember all, you know, I lived in a very, you know, regular area in Long Island, you know, where there were neighbors, and the neighbors would come over and bring breakfast, and, you know, they would set my hair when I had to go someplace, and then when I was a little older, and I would say, oh, you know, it's midnight, and I'm, oh, and I'd knock on one of my neighbors' door, I'd say, oh, my boyfriend broke up with me, and I'd be crying, and they'd say, all right, come in, and there were just so many people not for fame, not for fortune, not for any recognition, just because they were good people, really kind of watched out for me. Well, you've been very involved uh, throughout uh, the years of your success in supporting a number of charities and uh, contributing and donating and helping. Um, perhaps there's a connection uh, to your philanthropic work and uh, your experiences as a, um, as a child who, who needed empathy and uh, support from others. Yeah, I'm sure there was. I mean, but again, as I said, you know, I everyone internalizes things different. And I have a friend who, when I met her, said to me, you know, my husband died when my son was 10. You were 10. Um, what did that feel like? And, you know, I said, I don't know. You know, I I got out of the hospital. I went back to school, you know, and, you know, and, and I remember crying, you know, uh, uh, sometimes. But, you know, you just. You're as a child. I mean, I'm not sure. You know, I knew she wasn't there, and I, I, I felt sad and I cried. But I, but I had to grow up quickly because I was the oldest out of three children, and there was no one to tell me what to do. So therefore, I kind of did whatever I wanted, and there was no one to make decisions for me. So I kind of, and I think sometimes that that was you know helped me because I really did what I wanted. I made my own decisions. My dad was kind of out of it and um, for a while, and he, so I really had no one really on my case. I used to tell my friends, if you want to stay out late, sleep over my house. We can stay out late. And I, I think that I had to grow up early and, and you know, and, we, and, and, and so making, sometimes I see people, you know, so overpowering their children, not letting them make any decisions. And I don't say that you should not have any restrictions, but I do think that some of my success was that I had to make decisions, and I really um, had to make my own decisions. And and it wasn't such a bad thing. And I, you know, I think it wasn't. Um, you know, I think it was different then. You know, I don't think think that children, and you have to make mistakes. Um, you know, part of life is making mistakes and ups and downs and how you navigate through them. I always tell people, I have a, uh, a, 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 a thing in my office that says, success is failure turned inside out. Hmm. And I tell people if, you know, the only people that never fail are people that never do anything. Yeah. But if you look at successful people, you don't hear them get stuck in it. They don't talk about all their failures, but they failed more than anybody who's not successful did because that's how they got there. So I, I think that's part of life, and I try to talk to people about that mm. um, many a day, that, you know, 
part of getting to where you want to go is tenacity and to be able to fail or have a disappointment, you know, feel bad for yourself, cry a little, and then just get back into the game again. Well, you certainly have uh, proven uh, yourself to be a successful entrepreneur. And uh, when when you talk to young people who are, you know, talking about what they want to be when they grow up or what what school they want to go to and all that, um, first of all, I wonder, you know, what your ambitions were at the time you checked in at Adelphi and at that point in your life. But also, do you think that there are different types of people that are cut out to be an entrepreneur uh, as opposed to um, work for a big company and 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 not start their own business, or perhaps in some cases uh, starting with a big company and then going out on your own. What are your thoughts about modern day I think entrepreneurship? That's a great question. I really think, um, and again, this is just my opinion. Um, and I never forget, forget years ago when I had to speak about entrepreneurship. I was it was like my first speech on entrepreneurship. I probably was about twenty nine. And I kind of got all these books, and I kind of really looked like, you know, those were the days you had to go to a library. But I kind of, and I kept on reading it, and I'm like, but this is not how I did it. Mm. I, I don't think it's for everyone at all. I think it's for certain people, and I think it's something that you should know about. And I, one of the things I plan to do um, as I continue my career is, you know, I built a business. It just happened to have been real estate. Being an entrepreneur, it's, you know, everyone looks at that and says, wow, you know, that's so great, you know, and this and that. And they don't realize what it really is, the ups and the downs, the $20 million, the 20 million loans I had out. Um, you're never really off. I mean, like, you know, seven days a week, seven nights. I mean, when it's your own business, you can't say, hey, you know, I'm out. Having, I'm not going to take this call. And so, and also capitalize. I mean, you have to... I think 80% of businesses don't make it because they're not capitalized properly. So there's a lot that goes into that, and there's a lot of risk. Uh, you can lose everything and then some. So I think it's a certain type of person. And I don't think it's necessarily brains. I think it's a certain type of person that's willing to do that, willing to take a chance. Um, people always thought, you know, oh, my God, you know, I'll never, you know I, I, I was – the cover of, uh, I think, maybe Forbes or something, and it said, one of the richest self-made women, and, and I had all these people writing to me, oh, can I marry you? And I'm like, yes, <laughs> if you want to take on my $200 million worth of debt. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, there is a, there, there, look, what you read about people in terms of how rich they are and what the reality is is often quite different, and I'm not going to delve into your situation, but it is interesting looking at Donald Trump, isn't it? How uh, yes. how he's played that game over the years. And also, as a fellow person involved in real estate, uh, you probably have found his career, for, forget the politics of it, just his career to have been quite interesting. Uh, am I correct? I, I know him personally. My partner in real estate uh, you know, was best friends with Donald. And so I know Donald and his children from before he was, when he was actually dating Millennia. That's about when I first started Douglas Elliman. Uh -huh. He was dating his wife at the time. And what I have to say, I mean, and again, I don't, you know, I don't get into politics other than with my close friends. I mean, I like, you know, because with business, everyone has, you know, people are very sensitive to it today. Oh, yeah. Although I think that we should be very thankful that we're in a country that, can we, that we can have a difference of opinion. But I will say this about Donald. Regardless of what you think of him, um, 
he's probably one of the greatest marketers I've ever met. Because if you go back before he was president, you know, all the buildings, and they're all over that say Trump, which they're now taking down. Those, he didn't own any of them. You know, he licensed his name. Right, right. And, 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 and he had no risk. And, you know, I live right by Time Warner where, you know, where his hotel is. And tourists would take pictures and where he was. He had Trump ties and Trump vodka and Trump this and Trump that. And I, I thought, wow, he's such a fantastic marketer. And I think that he, he, he's one of the best. And in his case, the, pro- the ultimate product is him. As opposed to a, a company with a name uh, or or product that uh, sometimes you don't even know who the entrepreneur behind a product is. You find out, wow, that's the guy behind, you know, whatever company. But in Trump's case, uh, he marketed himself. So, so maybe someday there'll be like all these dotty towers everywhere. No, I don't think that that's right. I don't think you're thinking well, about no, that. No, but I, but I do, you know, I, I tell people I really believe that. I believe everything is like I think marketing, you know, is everything. I mean, you have to be somewhat good at what you do. But I tell people, like, if you, you know, when I was in um, college or you know, high school around that, I used to work when there were records, you know, when there were real LPs and there were 45s and there were discos. And I'm sure nobody even knows what I'm talking about. That's all before you know? my time, Dottie, all before. <laughs> <laughs> but I used to work and I used to order, I used to buy all the um, disco 45s and some of the classicals. And so then Billboard magazine, which was the magazine that, you know, is the record, you know, business, they would call up and say, what's selling and this and that. And, and, and if something, the more something would sell, the more airtime that song got. So I will tell people, you could be the best singer in the world, but if nobody hears your song, uh, it doesn't really matter. Right. And right. you could have the best book in the world also. You could have a great novel that you write or something. But if nobody hears it or reads it or they don't know about it, and so that's a really big part of everything people do, I think, is how they market that product. And yes, I never really thought about it, but you're right. He marketed his name. Yeah. Now, you are – the thing that attracted me to you is not your uh, successes in real estate, although they're very, very, you know, admirable, but the fact that you do a hell of a good radio show every year for a long time now in New York City. And uh, that's kind of fascinating that you've um, accomplished um, – uh, you know, such quality in terms of a two-hour show on the weekend. Um, I believe it's called Eye on Real Estate, and uh, it's it's on The yeah. Answer, WNYM, and it's been on other stations in New York. In other words, it has a history. You've been with WOR. Um, how how do you enjoy doing radio um, in the midst of all of this business business that you do? Not that radio isn't a business, but radio is show business as well. How, how, I, how does it work I didn't know that I would love it at the time because, again, he, they were soliciting me to do a radio show and I was, you know, I certainly didn't know anything about radios other than listening to radio myself when I'm driving. And um, so they had to push me and I didn't want to do it. I said, listen, I, you know, two, and two hours, what would I even talk about? Um but basically, I ended up doing it for, I said, I'll do it for three months. And that's, um, and then I ended up loving it. And I do love radio. Uh, I find that, you know, you know, I really talk to the people 
that's that, and I know my audience. I could tell you, you know, what I I know them. I've been doing it so long. I know who they are. I've tried to bring in a younger audience because at the time when I started, remember they told me all, only older people listen to radios. So I've tried to bring a younger audience into that mix. Um, and I'm just very real, and I have a call-in show so people can call in, and I think that we really help a lot of people. There's a lot to know about real estate and mortgages and financing, but that could be very dull if you're just talking about it. So there's where your personality comes in and where you can tell stories and where you can um, make that show interesting. Okay, and so yes. I remember when I first started, I was probably, it was probably the third time that I ever had done the radio. It was like my third time. And I was on WOR, and they had a lot of listeners, a big audience. So a woman, as I'm on the show, you know, people called in, but there was a woman who emailed me while I was live speaking, and she said, if you say the word um, U-M, um, anymore, I'm going to switch the show to your competitor. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and I was like three weeks into it, so I thought really quick, what should I do? And then I said on air, oh, and I have a lovely lady who really, I said, you know, I'm great in real estate, but I'm new to this. I'm new to radio, and she's giving me some hints and said I said, um, too many times. So thank you very much for being my coach and pointing that out, you know, whatever I said. So and I said it on air. And that woman, I, for the like I think for 10 years after that, she kept on Every you did great today. You did great, and she became you know kind of like a fan. So I tried to turn that out, you know, and and then I, I turn that into a positive. And so and you know I think I, I love radio. I have a, I like to I like having a voice. I like to allow people to have a voice. And one of the wonderful things that happened during the radio is that people would call in and like attorney sometimes calls in or praises and they would share their knowledge. Or that I would say, well, we're a family, so if you've experienced this, or you know, you know, then call in and tell. And people would just call in and said, oh, just tell the call that just called in, and they will contribute information to them. Yes. So yes. I try to make everything I do like a family. It becomes a family, and it becomes like a roundtable discussion. It does. It does happen in Good Talk Radio, and that's a tribute to uh, your uh, quality and ability to do it, in spite of the fact that you said um. <laughs> which, which to this day, to this day, I, I've been doing radio longer than I like to admit. Um, I, of course, I'm proud of the, uh, the longevity I've accrued, but I still to this day, uh, wince when I hear myself doing, um, um, uh, it, those are called vocal pauses and they're a construct that we use to give ourselves that extra fraction of a second to think without having dead air. I was, I was influenced to think that it was a sign of intelligence when I used, when I, when I was, a, when I was a kid, seriously, Dottie, when I was a kid, I was so taken growing up on Long Island by the Bostonian accent of John F. Kennedy. And uh, he used to uh, talk uh, like this. I uh, uh, want to say this about that, and uh, yes. uh, the, 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 uh, that that was part of his. I emulated it. I I actually did you? Oh gosh, I I could easily speak without a vocal pause. I could go through. I could talk for an hour and not make one vocal pause. But somewhere deep in my psyche, I trained myself as a kid watching JFK to. Uh, do the uh thing because this makes you uh sound like you're thoughtful 
and and I and I've had trouble shaking it. Uh, just a, an interesting insight to. So when did you know you wanted to be on radio? Or I, was that that you wanted to go in that direction? Uh, when I um, got a job out at Model Shoppers World in East Meadow as this. As I a, remember Model. I'm old enough to remember. Uh, <laughs> as a department that store was announcer. <laughs> I was I was an actor. I I was in um in Freeport High School. I was in the theater there. And then I went to Hofstra which was a theatrical school, but I wound up getting um my my credentials was as an English teacher, a uh, high school English teacher, but I wound up in radio by um being um an announcer at that department store and being discovered. And really? um, and and to make a long story short, I wound up popping into radio. Thought I would do it temporarily um, while I still was a teenager, and uh, never stopped doing it. I wound up becoming a program director and an air personality, and all of a sudden I'm on in New York City, and the rest is history. I fell in love with radio. I never thought of myself as going into radio as a kid, but I was a radio fan. I used to love listening to radio and rock and roll. And the pop, you, you talked before about Billboard and the pop charts and all that stuff. I, yes. used, to, I used to make my own charts, Dottie. I used to uh, follow the songs. Uh, and uh, as it turned out, you know, in my career, one of the things I did is I did I, I redesigned Billboard's charts around 1980. I, I designed the charts in a number of the music trades. Now, of course, my my main field is talk, but um, no, I was I was a radio listener, and I was one of those kids that knew everything about it. <laughs> you know, I knew everything, but I never thought about doing it until I was about uh, seventeen, eighteen years old, and uh, and then I never stopped uh, doing it, and um, I'm still doing it to this day. I love I love radio. And uh, one can do radio, as you're proving. One can do radio and be involved in every subject that radio touches on. So which brings us back to real estate. Real estate is the kind of a subject that is a foundation upon which you can build all kinds of other topics. And why is that? Because real estate is fundamental to our society's culture and economy. And we're all tied into real estate, either as tenants, as landowners, as landlords, or as just owning the biggest investment in 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 our lives, and that is our home for most middle-class American families. Um, so, so a couple of things. One, I believe that you are sitting in the middle of an opportunity because I think real estate has the potential to be much bigger as a menu option on talk radio than it is currently. It's very big on TV, but for radio, real estate was it's a wonderful subject for radio for people with personalities who can take it beyond and touch on all of the other issues it connects to so i think that that is that is good plus um i think that uh, most people are tied to real estate as i said so let me ask you a question um most of the people listening to this broadcast <laughs> have some kind of a serious interest in real estate. They either own a home, maybe they own two homes, maybe they strive to own a home, maybe they're concerned about what their rent is going to be next year. Where is it going? Are we at the beginning? I know you don't have a crystal ball, all right? I I understand that. But, no, but, but where do you no think it's <laughs> yeah, Exactly. So from your gut and from your experience and your knowledge, where do you think real estate is going in terms of the broad strokes? I I, I don't want to set you off on a lecture. Just just a, f- a couple of minutes. What do you, what do you think is going to happen? Still, you know, I think universally we have offices all over the United States. So I, I don't want to talk just about New York or anything. Right. Um, it's on fire. 
uh, it's on fire. The pandemic, and this is kind of a shock to everyone, um, who thought that the pandemic, we couldn't show anything. And, of course, being in the city was even harder. They, you know, you couldn't even go into someone's apartment if you were their mother. Mm. Um, but what happened is people learned that they could, they were forced to be at home. And people had to conduct their business through Zoom and through things of that nature. And, you know, for people, especially baby boomers, who were used to going to work all the time, um, at first it was really difficult, but then they realized, wait a second, you know, this is not so bad. Of course, there's nothing like human interaction, and I don't want to at all say that, you know, that Zoom calls take, take the place of or build culture, which I think is really important in business. Uh, but they learn that, they, you know, they can have some, you know, some compromise of that. And if they don't have to be in the office every day, then they don't have to be in that big city all the time, and they can move further from a big city. So uh, that's, and then, you know, people needed space. With the pandemic, people wanted air and space, so, uh, you know, they wanted to move, and there was a migration to second homes or renting second homes. And... um I don't think, I think it's one of the things that the pandemic will live after the pandemic um, will be that people have what we call co-homes where uh, it's not that they have one or the other, they have two. Um, and I think that's all due to the fact that this trend is going to allow people to have some combination of working in the office and working from home at the same time. And I think that was happening because I think the millennials um, wanted that to begin with, they never wanted to work seven days a week, and they wanted free time, and they wanted family time, and they said, you know, we're not going to give up our golf on Sundays. So where the baby boomers kind of worked and worked and worked, um, and I think that they have it right. I think that people learned how to do it, and I think that that's really the best of both worlds where you go into the office sometimes, and that allows people to live further um, or to have second homes. And uh, that's what we're seeing all over the country. It's interesting. It, it's it, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. It's as if the technology of communications today is the equivalent in the 21st century to what the railroads were, or the interstate highway system was back um, in, in in prior times. It's it's a way to connect people to their business centers without having to necessarily um, be on top of it. And, and, uh, and they have some technology out now that, you know, I always tell people, never buy something that you didn't see, okay? But, you know, they have technology now that's coming out that you can actually, you know, you can have virtual tours now already, but you can actually walk through something, touch it, feel it, um touch the fabric of the sofa. I mean, it's really amazing. And although I still would say the majority of people that buy residential real estate want to see it first, and I always suggest, you know, you, you want to know what the area is and what what it looks like and how far it is from town, um, I think that eventually you'll start to see. We see it gradually happening where people are buying houses without actually seeing them. Do you find yourself at this point... Um taking the radio, because that's basically our audience or media people, uh, taking the radio more and more seriously? Uh, if opportunities came up, would you would you do more of it? Uh, uh, I love it. Wow. And, I, and I don't think you can be great at anything that you don't love. But I'm very passionate about it. 
I'd love to uh, build on what I've done. And, and I think that with real estate, as you said in the beginning of our talk, it's like a universal language. Everyone wants to know about real estate, okay? Um, whether they're from this and you know, whether no matter where they live, no matter what they do. And also, I found in, 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 in crisis times, for example, when we had 9 11, um, people feel it's their safety. Whether it's a one room, one bedroom apartment, or it's a mansion, your home is your safety shelter. And I remember after 9 11, people would say to me, like, Can you get me a bigger place? In the Hamptons, I want my children to be there, and everyone—it's—it's—it's—it's your—it's your—it's your safety net. It's where you go, and I think it's important to everyone. And there you have it—an uninterrupted conversation with Douglas Elliman, CEO and WNYM New York radio talk show host Dottie Herman. Check out our website at dottieherman.com. Thank you for downloading this program from Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the Podcast One app, and for following our Tuesday tweets announcing the names of our weekly guests. To sign up, it's at MH Interview. I can be reached directly via email at michaelatalkers.com. If you find this show to be of interest and value, please subscribe to it as well as giving it a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you're interested in hearing my weekly one-hour radio show, The Michael Harrison Rap, check out mhwrap.com. Our producer is Matthew B. Harrison. The Michael Harrison Interview. Thank you for listening. The Michael Harrison Interview is a presentation of Podcast One in association with Good Phone Communications and Talkers Magazine. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.